Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by sharing with you a thought that I recently heard from another pastor. I want you to imagine uh, a family picture. Uh, Not a picture of your immediate or extended family, but a picture, if it were possible, of the entire family of God, of the universal church, of everyone in every place from the beginning of history, all those everywhere who've been saved by grace through faith. Somehow, miraculously, they're all able to get into one really honking big wide lens picture. And on the one hand, this is beautiful. I mean, everybody's here. But on the other hand, if you really started to look at that picture, it'd get pretty uncomfortable pretty fast. Why does it get uncomfortable? Because as you look at it, you notice who's there. Your adulterous uncle is there. Your alcoholic grandmother who left her husband and your father is there. Your nephew who went to prison for unspeakable actions toward a minor is there. The more you look, the more you become uncomfortable. But then, then as you look even closer, most shocking of all, Jesus is in the very center of the photo, right up front, with his arms around people that you know and he knows have all sorts of history. And he's there. And he's with them. And he's not ashamed to call them his own. Friends, I want to tell you that if you had a family photo like this, you'd hide it in the attic. Or if it was digital, you'd remove certain people before you put it up for all to see. But do you know what Jesus does with that photo? Not only does he not remove those whom he knows have history, he clears off every other picture from the wall in the most prestigious, prominent place in his house. He frames it, he puts it up, and everybody who comes over, he brings them over to it, and he says, look, I want you to see my family. I want you to see those people that I love. I died and rose for those people. That's shocking. And here's the deal. What I hope to show you through this brief Christmas series is that little thought experiment isn't just shocking, it's actually an appropriate description of the heart of Christ for real sinners. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. In a phrase, Christmas is for the broken. So here's what I want to show you today. Today I want to show you that Jesus came from the broken, And then I want to show you why that matters to you. So two points. Number one, where did Jesus come from? Number two, where do you come from? 
And you might be helped to follow along if you use the outline I gave you in your bulletin. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? If you're new to the Bible, uh, the Bible has two big divisions. The Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament, Matthew to Revelation. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you just open up your Bible about three-fourths of the way through, you're going to hit Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And also, if you're new to the Bible, the big bold numbers are chapter numbers, and the little numbers are verse numbers. So when I say Matthew 1, 1, I mean chapter 1, verse 1. Big bold 1, small 1. Here we go. Matthew 1, verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer. And Eliezer, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What is this? It's Jesus' family tree. It's his genealogy. Now, it's not a complete genealogy. It's, it's, it's not 100% thorough like many authors. Matthew is selective in who he names in this genealogy, but that doesn't make it inaccurate. It just means that he wrote it to emphasize certain relationships over other relationships. And that makes sense because don't forget, he actually writes with a theological purpose and you can see that purpose by just looking at verse 1 and verse 17. Uh, just, just look at verse 1 and look at verse 17. He's intent on showing the reality that Jesus is a descendant of David and 
Abraham. Which is why he says what he says in verse 1. And which is why he repeats it again in verse 14. And then just identifies the number of generations there that he wanted to focus on. Now, I actually want us to spend a good amount of time. Not really that much time. Don't stress. In verse 1. I want you to look at it with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So I've called this the good news at a glance, and I've called it that way in your outline because this one verse is just bursting at the seam with three truths. First, this is a new beginning. The book of the genealogy. Okay, so you read that in English, and you're like, okay, the book of the genealogy. There we have it. But in the original, it's clear that this is an intentional echo of Genesis. The entire book of Genesis is structured around the phrase, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. It's the literary marker that the author of Genesis used to structure the whole book. And literally, the phrase in Genesis uh, is, this is the book of the beginning of. And then off you go. Well, do you know how Matthew starts in the original? This is the book of the beginning of. And it's an intentional echo of Genesis. Now, why does that matter? Because it's the gospel writer saying, this is a new beginning. We know what happened at creation. Adam rebelled against God and he plunged the entire world into darkness. But this is a new creation. This is a new Adam. And unlike the first Adam, his actions will be right. And the result of his actions is that he will bathe the world in light. So in the first creation, Adam's disobedience brought darkness and it brought death. And in this new creation, Jesus' actions will bring light and it will bring life. So I think of Romans chapter 5. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's a new beginning here. So I'm just wondering how many of you here this morning are looking for a new beginning. Wondering who here is wanting a new start. The wonderful thing about Jesus Christ is that he is all about offering new starts. So would you like a new start this morning? Just ask yourself that question. He he will actually give it to you if you want it. And he's able to do that because of who he is. And that's where Matthew goes next. The book of the genealogy of... Jesus Christ. So do you know why the boy born to Mary is called Jesus? You actually don't have to wonder. Uh, You could just turn to verse 21 in the same chapter where you are right there. In verse 21, the angel says to Mary, he's announcing the birth of the coming child, and he says, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus means deliverer. Jesus means savior. This is the savior. The savior of who? The savior of everybody who wants to be saved. It's really as simple as that. He is the savior and he is also the Christ. Did you notice how Christ is ascribed to Jesus several times in this genealogy? So verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called Christ. Or verse 17. So that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Christ is not Jesus' middle name or just that name your dad might have called you when he was really mad. Christ is actually a title ascribed to Jesus, and it means anointed one or Messiah. And the Old Testament anticipates a coming anointed one, a coming Messiah, a coming deliverer who's going to act on behalf of God's people. And he's going to act in such a way as to where he actually delivers them fully and and finally and and climactically. And the point here in, in saying this right where he says it is that this Jesus is that guy. Jesus is not only the Savior, Jesus is the Messiah. And then Matthew goes on to say, oh... And actually, by the way, he is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. (laughs) The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Listen to me. All of the promises that God made to his people, they're all funneled through these two men. So to David in 2 Samuel 7, God promised him a descendant who would rule over God's people forever. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. His throne will never end and God's favor will never depart from him. But the promises to David actually have roots back in the promises to Abraham. So to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God promised that it would be his descendant and his seed and his offspring that God would choose to bless all the families of the earth through. But then honestly, we've got to even take it back one more level. It's like one of those gifts. It says it. I won't do it. Maybe you open up and then there's another box that's wrapped and you open that up and then there's another box that's wrapped and you're starting to wonder, is this prey? It's just a joke. No, it's not a joke. It actually goes back to the promises to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Handiwork. And in Revelation, in flesh. Promises to David roll back to the promises to Abraham, roll back to the promises to Adam. What promises are those? Well, after their rebellion against God and the entrance of sin into the world and the nuclear fallout associated with that, God made a promise that one day, one day, he will raise up one of her far-off descendants to crush the head of the serpent and restore everything broken by the fall. Friends, that's Jesus. All of the saving promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. So I'm just wondering what promises you're hoping are going to fulfill you. I'm wondering what promises you look to practically to to save you. So do you look to relationships to save you from loneliness? Do you look to filters to save you from porn addiction? Willpower to to save you from enslavement to alcohol? Milk toast counseling or self-help books to save you from scary thoughts of self-harm? 
weed to save you from stress? Friend, every promise other than Jesus Christ is going to leave you unsatisfied. It's like drinking salt water. It's wet. But it doesn't quench your thirst. These things leave you yearning, leave you aching, leave you longing. Perhaps they leave you angry or bitter or hard. This is why he came. He came to set you right. Look, honestly, those things... When you look to those things to satisfy you, you look to those things to satisfy you because you aren't right with God. Those things are God substitutes in your life and Jesus came to actually set you right with the real deal himself, with God, and not those substitutes. But maybe you think you can't be a part of that. Now there are lots of reasons why people think they can't be a part of that. But one of the biggies is honestly the past. A past of sin that they think disqualifies them somehow. Do you think your past disqualifies you? Or on the other side of the table, a past of religious effort that's left them jaded. Is that you? I've literally had people tell me, have you ever had anybody tell you this? God couldn't love me given what I've done. Have you ever had people tell you that? Heck, friends, our own associate pastor thought that when he was outside of Christ. He thought he'd gone beyond forgiveness because he'd cursed God in his heart. It's real. It happens. Is it you? What have you thought about God? What have you done? Where do you come from? Well, I want you to look with me for a moment at where Jesus came from. And I want to spend just a second observing some basic history about his family tree. And if you think it's all clean living and good family pictures, just buckle up and get ready. So in verse 2 through the first part of 6, Matthew's tracing for us Jesus' lineage from Abraham. That's the whole point of this first little section is to show us that Jesus came from Abraham. But there's some history here behind these names. First of all, Abraham himself. Did you know that when he was faced with a situation where he thought a pagan ruler might kill him and take his beautiful wife, he lied and he said she was his sister. Now he did this not once, but he did it twice. And of course, by doing this, he saved his own skin because the king would think, well, I, I can kill him so I can have his wife. But if, if he just says she's my sister, he'll, he'll save his own skin, but at the expense of his wife, Right? I mean, somebody think that's not good. That would be, okay, that's good. That's a good impulse. That's, that's not good. Now, both times God protected her and she wasn't violated, but Abraham, what the heck, right? Really? Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob. Now, there's a piece of work. <laughs> I want you to imagine a crooked car salesman. I want you to imagine a politician. No, no, no. Actually, I want you to imagine, you ever been to a carnival and you see one of those games that looks so easy, like pop this balloon and get this massive teddy bear for your sweetheart or for your kid, and you think, I'm going to do this. And then, But what do you find out? You find out that the game is totally rigged by the carny, and you walk away wanting to kill him. 
right? He's a crook. He just suckers you in and he takes your money. Those balloons are made of like, I don't know, they don't pop, right? That's this guy, okay? That's Jacob. He's that crooked. Even his name means he cheats, okay? Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by who? Tamer. Now you, you want to know the uncomfortable situation here? Tamer, who gave birth to Perez and Zerah, Tamer is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now Judah didn't go into her knowing she was his daughter-in-law. He went into her thinking she was a prostitute. And she impersonated a prostitute. That's awkward. (laughs) Perez fathers descendants leading to Salmon. Salmon, I don't know how you should really say that. You know, Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab is a harlot. Boaz, in turn, marries Ruth, the Moabitess. Moabites were known for their sexual sin. There's nothing to suggest Ruth was sexually promiscuous at all, but the Moabites themselves, a a very, very, very promiscuous people that God wanted Israel to stay away from. Now let's just look at the history from David on. So in verses 6b through 11, Matthew traces Jesus' descent from David to the exile. And then in 12 through 17, he traces his descent through David from the exile to his birth. And what names in history do we have here? A lot. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that's a small but powerful phrase. Who gave birth to Solomon? What does the text say? The wife of Uriah. Why doesn't the text say Bathsheba? Wasn't Bathsheba, Solomon's mom by David? Yeah, she was. It's phrased that way, friends, because the biblical writers never hide uncomfortable truth. By the way, that's one of the strong cases for the fact that the Bible is both real history and the Bible is trustworthy because the warts of biblical history aren't removed by the biblical authors. What's highlighted here is the fact that Bathsheba wasn't David's wife. She was the wife of Uriah. She became the wife of David, but only after he committed adultery with her and only after he plotted to have her husband killed so he could cover up the consequences. Your sin always finds you out, by the way. And David's sin found him out. And now everybody who reads the Bible knows about it too. Of course, there's Solomon. And there's a lot to Solomon that's not savory either. When you think of Solomon, maybe you think about his building and completion of the temple But I'm sure you also remember the reality that his heart was led astray into outright idolatry and the worship of false gods because of his many wives that God told him not to do. And he said, forget it, I'm going to do it. Solomon gave birth to Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a real winner, okay? Through his youthful pride and arrogance, he lost the kingdom immediately after he became king. The northern tribes come to him. They ask him to be gracious towards the people, lessen their burden. He consults his father's counselors who say to him, hey, listen to the people. Treat the people well and the people will serve you. Sounds like decent counsel, right? 
Well, he goes and he consults the young men. And they say, don't listen to the people. Show the people who's boss. And so he goes with the young men's council and the northern ten tribes leave the kingdom immediately. The kingdom splits because of his foolish arrogance and pride. And if you keep reading the names again, there's just this uncomfortable history. Ahaz, wicked, wicked, wicked king. Manasseh, wicked, wicked, wicked king, but then redeemed at the end. Even down to Jesus' mother, it can be uncomfortable, right? Mary. Not because there's anything in the sight of God that's cringeworthy. She was a virgin. She did not cheat on Joseph. But that is certainly not what Joseph thought at first, right? (laughs) And I guarantee you, it's not what the townspeople thought. Anytime she was around, I'm sure there were whispers. Oh, there's Mary. That Mary, right. The one who gave birth, though she hadn't known a man. By the way, the four women included in this genealogy are all striking. Tamer and Rahab were Canaanites, and their sexual morality was less than squeaky clean, to put it kindly. Ruth was a Moabitess. Bathsheba was the wife of a Hittite. This foreshadows the truth that Jesus came not just for Israel, but for all peoples. Those are all Gentiles. Those are all us. Praise God. Now that's a crooked family tree. That is a crooked family tree. But the Bible doesn't hesitate at all to tell us this is where Jesus came from. And this is who Jesus came from. And why do you think it does that? For many reasons, but one of which, friends, is so that we would be helped to know that Jesus came for broken people like us. And that's where I want us to think about next. We've looked at where Jesus came from. Let's just think about where you come from. Now, to some of you here, if we could just step back for just a second. For some of you here... You identify with this idea of, of brokenness. You hear it and you, you, don't, you don't have tension with thinking, yes, that's me. Maybe you have certain things that are on your mind that are very troublesome to you. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't really bother you, this idea of brokenness. And you, in fact, identify with it. But many of you here may not feel that way. You may feel, honestly, that that doesn't really apply to you. Because, honestly, you've got things pretty put together. You're, you're one of the good guys. Friends, I have to tell you that the reality is this is you whether you feel like it or whether you don't feel like it. Because first of all, you come from a broken lineage. Do you know who your father is and what he's done? That's a question for you. Do you know who your father is and what he's done? According to scripture, your father is Adam. Every single one of you, your father is Adam. And your father has done the most heinous thing. Although he was created in the image of God, although God gave him every imaginable blessing, although his every need was provided for, it still wasn't enough for your father, Adam. He wanted more. He wanted to rule his own life instead of live underneath the lordship of God. And that's why he rebelled. He rebelled because he wasn't willing to submit himself to the law of God, which was for his good. Adam wanted to be his own God. 
And so did Eve. And so they did. And the uncomfortable truth is that you're born into the image of Adam. You're actually born with the same nature. You're born with a broken nature. Now, what do I mean when I say you're born with a broken nature? That's a good question. What I mean is that it's a nature inclined towards living under the rulership of self instead of underneath the rulership of God. To have a broken nature, to be born in the likeness of Adam, is to be inclined to live underneath the rulership of self instead of inclined to live underneath the rulership of God. And this is true of every single person who's ever born. This is why the Bible makes sweeping statements like it does in Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Or Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. What's, what's the way that we've turned to? The way of our father, Adam. The way of self. Now, honestly, this doesn't manifest itself the same way in all of us, okay? So for various reasons, we are not all as bad as we could be. And, please hear me, this truth doesn't mean that there's nothing good in us at all. After all, we are created in the image of God. But it does mean that we have a fundamental orientation away from God and toward ruling ourselves. And I want you to hear me. This is actually the really big sin in your life. So when you think of sin, what do you think of? I bet you think of lying, cheating, of stealing, of manipulating, of sexual sin. Those are all sins. That's true. But frankly, they're They're little sins, comparatively. The big sin is that you want to rule yourself. The big sin is that you want to be God over your own life. But friends, you're not God. God is God, and God is over all, and he is God over you, but you actually look at him and you say, no, I'm God over me. That's the biggest sin in your life. And you're just like your father, Adam. You have the same nature. And this, by the way, is where your broken life comes from. So your nature is the root, okay, And your life, your actions are the fruit. So your heart is oriented away from God and towards self. And this is why your actions are oriented away from God and towards self. So this is why you get angry when other people and other circumstances invade your agenda. Okay? So this is why when you're scooping ice cream, you always make sure to get your fair share. It's just just my fair share, right? This is why when you're driving your car and someone cuts you off, your impulse is not to say, bless them. (laughs) This is why we're sinners. It's because our hearts aren't right. Our hearts are the source of our lives. And it's it's, it's like you've got a source of of, of water and, and the source is contaminated. And so since the source is contaminated, the flow is what? Contaminated. Right. 
Our broken lives flow from broken hearts. And so how does that brokenness manifest itself in you? Is it your temper? Is it your compulsive behavior? Is it that you you can't say no at night to the bottle of wine? Is it that you perpetually ignore your spouse? Is it, is it bitterness? So, so, so what is it for you? And listen, maybe you don't feel the weight of anything right now. Maybe you, you don't feel like there's anything that's really grabbing you right now. But every single one of us, if we've lived long enough, we know there's something we look back on. And if we're not consciously running it through a gospel grid, there's something we look back on that brings us great shame. I don't even know what that is for you. But you do. You know this is true. You know you're not right. And so, what's your hope? Merry Christmas, you're messed up, right? (laughs) Okay, what's your hope? What's your hope in brokenness? You know what I'm going to say. All the kids could say it. Kids, could somebody say it? What's your hope? What? Jesus, there you go. Yes, without apology, I'm going to say Jesus. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is the one who came from sinners and came to sinners. But I want to say more than just that because you may misunderstand me if I only say that. And so I want to give you some direction on what to do. Number one, don't be one who's blinded or deluded that you don't even need Jesus. This is where most people are at today. They just don't think they need Jesus. Is that you? Honestly, ask yourself that right now. Do you think you need Jesus? Or is it the other people who need Jesus? Or do you think that you might need Jesus or maybe need Jesus or need Jesus a little bit, but not as much as the other person who needs Jesus more? Friend, if that's you, the devil has you right where he wants you. You're not going to seek care from the physician of your souls if you don't even think you're sick. Second, don't be despairing that there's no way out. So number one, don't be one who's blinded or deluded that you need Jesus. Number two, maybe an opposite error that you might make, Don't be despairing that there's no way out. Oftentimes, for those of us who, when we really are in the thick of it and we cannot see how we can get ourselves out, we despair. And we think there's no way out of this. I love 1 Corinthians 6 when it says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to tell you is don't be despairing that there's no way out. What I mean by that is don't let your past define you. Your past 
even up until and including right now, does not have to define you. Don't be despairing that there's no way out. Don't let your past define you. And maybe in a, in a different vein along the same lines but a different tack, in lo- not letting your past define you, don't think that if you've had a false start as it relates to the Christian faith, you know, you've made a profession of faith, but then it became clear to you that you're not a Christian. Don't, don't let that make you think you can't come to Jesus. And also, as it relates to letting the past define you, don't, let, don't think that passivity is the answer to just wait for the proverbial lightning bolt to strike and for you to feel really bad for your sin before you come to Jesus. Don't let the past define you. Third, don't seek your own solution to the problem. Okay? Don't seek your own solution to the problem. So there are lots of paradigms for salvation out there. Okay? There's salvation through self-help and through counseling. So that's the therapeutic culture, right? For every problem, we seek an answer, but we seek the answer outside of God. By the way, I find Christians do this oftentimes too. If they have a problem in life, they think they need to go to an expert. Who's the expert? Some counselor who may not know God and the ways of God. And so they seek secular counseling for a problem that would be better served by letting the truth of God's word applied by thoughtful Christians impressed upon their lives would be much more effective. Salvation through self-help or through counseling. Uh, There's salvation through blame shifting. You know, this is kind of the thinking of, 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 of why you're bitter is just because of of things in your past or, or why you're addicted to whatever is, is just because of things in your past. It's, it's, a, it's a dad wound. It, it's a mom wound. It, it's a past wound. And by the way, this is more reason if I were to just encourage you not to seek secular counseling. It's because their view of God and man isn't right and therefore their counsel isn't going to be Right. Although our past certainly affects us and impacts us, the Bible has a way to process that that is not merely denying responsibility for it because of what took place in the past. So don't seek salvation through blame shifting. It actually doesn't help you. Uh, Here's another one. I think this one's huge. Salvation through authenticity. So what you really need to do is you really need to discover and embrace your true Self, your self-defined self. This honestly denies that there is a problem. It says you, you actually don't have a problem. The guilt you're feeling needs to be shucked off. You just need to stop listening to those people who talk about the Bible and you just need to embrace whatever it is that you want to do. Friends, that's denying there's a problem or actually saying the problem itself is a solution, which isn't a solution. It's going to be worse. Are you able to follow that? Okay. So through salvation through authenticity, don't seek that. There's salvation through genuine and honest efforts towards morality, uprightness, and hard work. This is what I see in so many wonderful New Englanders. You're so hardworking. You're honest. You, you are moral, upright people. But that doesn't accomplish anything ultimately at the judgment seat of God. Salvation does not come through those things. 
There's salvation through activism. Think social justice. That's how you're going to make right the things that are wrong, not by focusing on yourself, but by focusing on others and advocating for justice in the world. Or on the other side of things, there's salvation through conservatism. Make America great again. That's how things will be well again. Two sides of the table, neither are going to work. And neither are going to satisfy you. And neither recognize the reality of the problem, which is that you are broken and you need a Savior. You should come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whose body was broken on the cross and then raised to life so that broken sinners can be forgiven. So that hearts that have turned astray can be turned back. And so that lives that flow from those hearts can be redeemed and live for the glory of God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. And that is what is so wonderful about Christmas. It's that he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He came to redeem all that has been lost and ruined by the fall. And we are helped to see the reality of... Well, ever since Adam and decided to trust the serpent in their own wisdom, all come off and often exercise it. So we don't see ourselves this way, despite all the... We are really good at downplaying... That in that he himself came from sinners. He came from a long line of messed up people. So messed up. So that messed up people like us